The following interview with Michael Waits was taken from our Talking Well show that's on Flix. That's F-L-I-X-X dot net. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Talking Wealth, the show where the Wealth Within team are on hand to teach you how to become a more confident, competent, and more importantly, profitable trader or investor. Wealth Within was voted number three for stock market podcasts globally in 2018, so I hope you enjoy listening. We cover topics from trading to investing, as well as wealth creation to ensure you can achieve your financial goals. Because as we always say, lifestyle matters. As a global leader in stock market education, you can fast track your journey towards financial freedom by studying with Wealth Within. If you'd like more information about our government accredited courses or to listen to more Talking Wealth podcasts, head over to wealthwithin.com.au and click on the Talking Wealth podcast under the Learning Centre. Please note that the information in this podcast should not be considered personal financial advice. Welcome back to Talking Wealth. Now in today's show, we've got a very special guest that we will introduce you to, someone who has decades of experience in the stock market. And that means we could literally chat about anything from Buffett to ETFs, trading, what's happening on the market and lots in between. Hello, I'm Dale Gillen, the Chief Analyst here at Wealth Within and joining me, joining me today is Janine Cox. Hello. Hello. Good to see you again. Now let's introduce you to our guest for today. Originally from California, he's worked in global finance for more than 20 years, employed by firms like Citigroup, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, primarily in Tokyo. Michael is a leader in the digital media space, having pioneered the concept of a podcast network in Asia while building the biggest and fastest growing listener base in the region. His flagship website, asiatechpodcast.com, has listeners in over 125 countries and his company, Michael Waits Media, produces some of Asia's most popular podcasts. So welcome to the show, Michael. Michael, my first question to you is, recently with the um, announcement about COVID-19, the stock market pulled back in dramatic fashion. Now, we saw three weeks of selling and ASIC, which is the Australian regulator, came out and said that um, the institutions that were hugely short selling the market had to cease what they were doing and not flood the market with so many trades. Now, I'm just interested to see how um, the changing nature and the landscape of the markets is impacting what's happening and how is that likely to um, affect the market overall in future? Because you've seen a lot of things um, in the industry and I thought you could shed some light on that for us. So is it is it the case that the Australian regulator is saying that they will no longer be allowed to short sell or that they're going to over-regulate or re-regulate what the short selling rules are? We saw this in Japan actually um, in the 2000s, yeah. And you know, it was good and bad for the market at the same time. But what, what I want to do is step back for a second and talk about what happened in the U.S. market, right? So from the April, from the, what, February highs to the April lows, we went down 35%. And then after we went down 35%, we saw the market just race higher until now, and it's kind of right back to where it was before. The, the, there are two questions really for me, and I'll, I'll answer both of them. One, is short selling okay, right? It's kind of an unfair playing field. I can't borrow the same number of shares that a superannuation fund can. I can't, and if they can short, right? But I also can't borrow the same number of shares that a hedge fund can. I can trade on margin, but my impact on the market is going to be much lower. And I think if you want to have fair markets, right? And that's what they're there for. Remember, 
for me at least, the key reason for the market is for proper and efficient capital allocation. Because if it's just a trading casino, well, then maybe we should have a separate, and I've thought about this too, maybe we should have a separate stock market for speculators and a separate market for investors. And those two things can trade at different prices. But then again, you're going to create an arbitrage between those two things. There's going to be a lot more noise over here where the speculators are than where the real investors are. So I think we've got to come up with some better rules, to be fair, for how those markets are supposed to trade. And, and I think you know, high-frequency trading comes into this as well. I, I frankly think that high-frequency trading shouldn't be allowed because it has nothing to do with capital allocation. I understand the liquidity side of it, but it just doesn't feel like it's the right thing for the market. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and look, I mean, with the um, the sell-off and the short selling you were talking about before, in right. Australia, uh, our super funds can loan out the stock, and a lot of investors have no idea that their super funds are actually loaning out the stock to these big institutions, and it's helping push the market down quicker. So I agree with you. There needs to be some further thought put into this down the track in a serious way, because I just see that Australia, with all of the money that we've got in superannuation at the moment, it's a bit of we're a bit of sitting duck really, waiting for that to happen. Yeah, I mean the other thing is. I think if you ask most individual investors, and I, I talk to friends all the time, oh, I would short that if I could. Mm. And they just look at me with a blank stare. I don't think most individual, individual investors actually even know what a short sale is. So then I try to break it down into its components and explain it to them. Here's the thing. Let's say you own 1,000 shares of SoftBank, and I think the price is too high. I borrow those shares from you, and I pay you a fee for that. And then I take those shares and I go out into the market and I sell them basically at any price because I think it's going to go down. And I'm not trading for basis points, I'm trading for percentages. And even as soon as I say borrow that stock from you, they're just like give up and go back to the bar and get a beer because they don't understand. But I think you're right. I think investors do end up being sitting ducks because while the market's going through all, the, all this sort of mayhem and all these ups and downs, most people are really wondering what's going on. I mean, when you talk to individual investors, and you teach them things, what do you tell them about short selling and how long does it normally take them to figure out like what, what that actually means? Because the mechanism's not mm. forward, right? Mm. Do you want to take that one? Yeah, look, with, with, the, um, with the short selling side of things, it really is, it's, a lot of people have trouble with that because obviously they're used to buying something that's going to appreciate in value. So psychologically, they, they struggle with it saying, well, I'm, I'm actually going entering into a position for it to fall away. So they struggle with that. But I do find a lot of people don't really understand the market and they don't understand what the big end of town are doing, which is what you've been chatting about. They don't really understand about this high frequency trading and algorithmic trading and all of that sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. I really do agree with you. I mean, Janine and I agree with you that you know, high frequency trading, it really, it's not about creating value there. It's just about creating transactions and people taking, or institutions or big players just taking little clips. So yeah. just because you can come up with a product doesn't mean it should be allowed to be traded in the marketplace. And I mean, you know, you only have to look at, you know, the GFC with that subprime mortgage market. I mean, you know, that was just a disaster, you know, but they allowed that to happen. So the regulators, I think, do need to be a lot stronger in what they're doing and how they're um, allowing products to be traded. and. You know, I do think investors are quite often in the dark about exactly what's happening, how their pricing is doing. I mean, you don't have to bring up the case of Robinhood, you know, how that's that app in the US, how that's actually placing trades. Robinhood's actually not placing the trades for you. They're just selling it to a broker who's then taking their, they're paying Robinhood for the trades. 
And I think, you know, to me, that shouldn't be allowed either because obviously it's causing the person who's buying the share, it's costing them more money to get the share because the broker <coughs> transactings, in my theory, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure how they work, but I'm assuming that the broker buys the share first and then sells it onto the Robinhood trader at a slightly higher price so they, they make their money in their clip. And so everything's all happening, but there is a lot of stuff going on that a lot of retail people don't understand. So, but what would you suggest retail traders or retail investors and traders be doing right now? I mean, what market should they be trading? What should they be doing? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I look at, I look at what Warren Buffett said at the beginning of this year in May at his um, investor meeting. He's not buying anything, he's selling. And I think this is actually different than the global financial crisis, and I'll tell you why. Because that was sort of a monetary problem and a fiscal problem. This is, this is a pandemic problem and, econ and an economic problem. There are more people in the United States um, unemployed than ever have been before. And I also think that the liquidity that the U.S. government put into the market in April and in May is what helped drive that up through stock buybacks. So I think actually people should take some money off the table, particularly after the market went down 35% and then rallied higher. And I think they should also be very careful. So they should take, I mean, I think this for, for sure when you make money anyway, if something goes up, whatever you expected it to go up, you should have a trading strategy. When I first started trading, my boss sat me down in a room and he said, what are your trading rules? I have no idea. Well, he gave me a bunch of trading rules. Position is more important than price. You know, understand where your stop levels are. If you think something's going to go up 10%, don't have a stop level down 7%. It doesn't make any sense. So understand what all these rules are. I would, I would tell individual investors to have these rules. But I would also say today, I would say be very careful about trading individual stocks. And also, if, you have, if you've made money from the lows, take half that money away. Put it, in, put it in a safe place and then watch what the market does for the next two or three months and then trade more strategically. But I think we need to make a distinction, and I, I put this in the notes as well, I think we need to make a distinction between what's trading and what's investing. Because most people are not going to be super great traders unless they're disciplined enough to understand where their entry points are, what the value is in the stock if they're trading individual stocks are, and then where their get out point is. That, 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 that's what I would say to individual traders. See, I still think it's about, about the individual stocks because <clears> obviously with these ETFs, and we were talking before about ETFs, um, you know, having a, such a huge prevalence now in the marketplace and a lot of control in terms of the volume there, and that's growing, uh, as what you were saying. But I still think it's about the stocks because if the ETFs investing in, are investing in the stocks, then those stocks are going to be moving. And a lot of those ETFs are indexed ETFs, so they've got to have exposure on the stocks anyway. So I think that it actually does take out, it, it should, in theory, help take out some of that volatility out of the market if a lot more concentration is going into these ETFs that have, in theory, got to benchmark the overall um, direction of the market rather than there being more, you know, um, trading up and down all the time. So if there's a lot more money doing that, but it's the hedge funds that, in my mind, that is, are the, is the different part of the equation here for, for my thinking, because I think investors can still have an edge. Like if you understand, you know, understanding trading and understanding where the better entry points are and exit points are, there's still, you know, huge um, ranges that can be traded to get a return out of shares. People have to think differently, though, because I think with, and the banks was a classic example in the GFC in the US market, but also in the Australian market. Um, sure. More recently, we've seen 
mean, that, that people thought they could buy and hold banks and sit on them forever and they would never lose. You know, they'll just keep collecting the dividends and the bank shares would keep going up. But that's actually proven to be incorrect. And this is what we've been saying all along, right? You know, even before the GFC, we've been in telling people you can't just buy and hold things. You've got to be more active. So I think individual shares can have a, can have a huge advantage because the more volume, the more interest that goes into the marketplace, the more liquidity that's in the marketplace, those bigger shares, and I agree with you, we were saying before we came on air, the bigger shares are going to have more prevalence and more relevance to investors than the smaller shares. But to me, that's always been the case. And individual investors have tried to follow what they thought the big boys were doing, but were just sucked in by um, a lot of um, you know stuff out there in the media that they hadn't, like you said before, they had no idea about how things were happening and that stocks get promoted, certain stocks get promoted because the institutions want them to be promoted at that point. It's the little people who are buying them. So, right. you know, if they stick to the bigger shares, they know that they're well covered and it, whether ETFs traded or whoever's trading, it doesn't really matter because the liquidity is going to be there as the market grows. And that's, to me, the important thing for investors. But, I mean, you've got some interesting insights when it comes to ETFs. So maybe you want to share that a little bit more. Yeah, my feeling on this is that most individual investors, if they have enough money to invest, probably don't, probably have a job. And they probably have a really good job. But what that probably means as well is they don't have enough time. So there's no longer an information gap between what they can know because of the internet and the easy and steam, I mean, <clears throat> seamless dissemination of information. But they don't have time. There's a time gap. It's really hard, I think, for an individual investor who's not trading all day, every day, Again, unless they have a specific strategy and using specific technology to tell them about stop outs and get out trades. You're right. Most people probably should be more active. The problem is that more and more and more money gets, in my perspective, from my perspective, get poured into these index funds. So look at the biggest names in some of the index funds, like Apple. So is it going to trade on earnings now, or is it just going to trade on the trillions of dollars that go into the S&P or the Russell or any of that kind of stuff. It's hard to say. And I don't think most individual investors have the time to make that decision. But to me, I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of irrelevant though to an individual investor. I, th I really do. I think the fact that you're getting all of that volume coming into the ETFs is a really positive thing for people who are trying to trade those shares and make some money out of them in, re in reality. I mean, what are your thoughts, Dale? You well, yeah, I think to me, what we always talk about with people is it is possible for you to you know, beat the market and, and beat the index funds. I know I did a, an article um, for US news, new World News and Media only last, last year, and it was about ETFs on the S&P 500. And I said, why would you buy an ETF on the S&P 500? If all you did was buy the top 10 stocks, you'd return, I think it was double of what you would have got if you bought the index ETF, and, and these were companies like your Apples, your Microsofts, etc., those top 10 stocks in the S&P 500. So the average man on the street doesn't need to know all of that information. I think too much information is detrimental to them trading Absolutely. very, very well. Um, and I think you're better off doing the opposite as having the least amount of information coming in or a lot <laughs> less information coming in. And just picking some really, really good stocks, like and the top rules. 20 stocks, like the rules. So, so I know about in my book, Accelerate Your Wealth, we just traded the Dow stocks for 10 years during the GFC 
Um, so that was right in the middle of the trading period. Um, and we made phenomenal returns just using you know, stuff on a, a monthly basis and, and really just taking some really simple rules and doing well. And they still work today. Um, and But I think mum and dad, or sorry, should I say retail investors, really get sucked into this black hole of I need everything instantly on my phone. I need it instantly on my, you know, whatever my tablet is on my computer. And I'm at work and I'm trying to trade. And I think that's where you're going to get a lot. There's a lot of people getting into trouble. And again, yep. it's that question that you said, you know, what is a trader and what's an investor? And I but think also, there's a huge confusion there. But also discipline. This is very important, right? Because there can be, you, you know this from your own trading, right? And Janine as well. You can get into a position that you believe in 100%. And on the day you get into that position, it can go against you 3%, 4%. It's painful. But your stop-out level is down 7 Most people are afraid. Yeah. So the discipline is actually what's really important. And whether you're buying ETF itself, which I don't think is a great idea, or if you're buying the top 10 stocks in any particular index, top 5 big, biggest stocks in the index, right? Because those are the ones that are going to have the most impact. They have to buy mathematically by definition. But the point is... If something bad starts, like the World Trade Center goes down, or the financial crisis, or what happened in February this year, most people panic, hmm. right? And they can't control themselves from calling their broker and saying, I can't take the pain anymore. But I want, I want to comment on one other thing, because you mentioned Robinhood, trading for free. <laughs> yep. Really? Really? Yeah. Really? Yep. Right. I mean, if you if you didn't learn this when you bought your first um, McDonald's Happy Meal, then you're never going to learn this. Right. Where do they make all their money? Because they have to make money. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a 15 or 20, whatever the valuation is that they have. Mm -hmm. So how do they make their money? Anytime there's a dark pool, anytime there's a transaction between what you pay and what somebody else is, is selling it for, someone's taking a VIG. You say clipping a ticket, but I say taking a VIG. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most people understand that either. Right. So they don't want to pay the... $3 commission they pay to get a direct pipe to the exchange from TD Ameritrade, but they're happy to trade for free at Robinhood. Yeah. It's not to me, there's a, to me there's a bigger issue here, and I'm not I'm not going to refer to Robinhood specifically. I'm just talking. I'm not going to refer to Robinhood. I'm just going to refer to let's just call it say a broker, any broker puts out a recommendation to trade, and they've got a thousand clients, okay, and all of those thousand clients do what they say. So they had ten thousand clients, okay, just to make yeah. the number bigger. Um, and if they know that 90% of those clients are actually going to take up that offer, that's powerful information. Sure. Because when, if you're placing a trade as an individual, it doesn't really matter because you, the amount of capital that you put into the market is going to be quite no. small. So yeah. your decision is not relevant based on if other people are going to do it, so what? You're making a decision to go along as an individual. But now all of a sudden, you're trading en masse as a big institution almost. If they're putting all those big trades on, I don't know how they're doing it, whether they're doing it as they come in or whether they're aggregating them. No, they're doing it as they come in. They're passing it straight through to a broker. Oh, okay, so that's different. But but the mm. broker still knows mm. or somebody else in, behind the scenes still knows that there could be en masse all these trades coming through responding to those recommendations. Now, that's powerful information to have well, in they my do. mind. That's the point is, is mm. to me with the Robin Hood traders and that's why there's a whole investigation with the SEC mm. in the US about Robin Hood. Yeah, did you want Can to say I, something, Michael? Yeah, I, I do, because if you sit on a trading desk, you know the way this works. If you have 10,000 clients and you recommend that they all, again, buy a name, it doesn't matter, HSBC, Apple, it doesn't matter, really, 
right? What happens to that trade? You know this. They will aggregate all those trades and they'll call a proprietary trading desk. Either that or they'll send it into a dark pool. And yep. at that point, nobody really knows what happened. So why would, they, why would a broker call the proprietary trading desk at Morgan Stanley and say, offer me 25 million shares in Toyota? So now are they getting the market price or the, the best price? Or would it be better for that individual investor to trade that stock alone? But again, the broker has the, has the best information. Now, the question is, what happens with that information? I'm not done yet. Yeah? The, what happens to that information? Does that info go to the, to the proprietary trading desk behind them or to the agency desk behind them where they have clients that know that a big trade for Toyota is coming? Correct. I'm just saying. So you have to be very careful about where you do your trading but also about, and, and who's doing your trading for you because these market microstructures really make a difference. And I'll get back to what I said before. I don't think most individual or retail investors understand that at any level. I don't think that one of the first things that I learned my first day at Morgan Stanley, they, they gave us two books, one during the trade and after the trade to show us exactly what happened to an equity trade and a fixed income trade and then how it got processed. But the more important part was how did it happen? Mm. No, nobody, most investors don't know. I interrupted you, please. No, keep going. I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> I love this stuff. Keep going. <laughs> It, but when it's, it's worse, though, if there's a portfolio involved, right? So let's say you're a mutual fund purchaser. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Well, that mutual fund then has to take all of the orders that go into that, whether it's a massive buy order, whether they have a capital inflow or a capital outflow. Now they have to go to a portfolio trading desk. They don't want to trade off market prices, right? So what do they do? And, and Dale, you brought this up before, and I want to address this, too. What do they do? Mm -hmm. They'll normally go to a portfolio trading desk and say, give me a bid on this portfolio. And sometimes they actually won't expose the names in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll give you like an MSCI breakdown of it and say, here are mm -hmm. what the weightings are. And there are five names in this sector and two names in that sector. What's your price? Mm -hmm. So what yeah, happened? Let, let me just finish. So you mentioned earlier, some of these brokers are actually trading, are paying for this flow. And this gets back to the free question again. Why are they paying for it? Why would they mm. possibly pay for it? Because yeah. they have plenty, well, because they have plenty of other ways to make money off that flow, right? One of which is maybe they knew that portfolio trade was coming. Yep. Yeah, and that's that sort of that's what my point is with the you know the that sort of um, app sort of stuff is it's is the retail investor doesn't know what they're doing, but should it be allowed? And that's, I think that the SEC is right to questioning this because somebody's making money out of it, and is that really fair? Because if, from my perception of the market, is the retail trader ends up paying for it anyway, regardless. So somebody's making money off the retail trader. But, you know, if you're wanting to trade, um, you know, Apple or, or Microsoft or IBM or whatever else, and you're seeing it trade at X dollars today and you want to put the trade on, you want to get it at that price. But are you actually right. getting it at that price or are you no. getting it X plus plus, whatever that is? So, and is that affecting your ability to profit with both on the buy and sell side of that? Are you getting squeezed with the, with the spreads of the bid and ask spreads? So that's the but question. Also, mm. But also, what's the regulatory environment like in Australia? In the United States, the SEC... It's not a governmental body, right? I mean, the stock and bond markets in the United States are self-regulated, mostly for people that have come out of the big investment banks or the big banks go sit at the SEC. Um, Bernie Madoff comes to mind. And 
if if you're self-regulating, which is why CDOs and all the all the things that happen during the global financial crisis can happen, then you need to create a new regulatory environment if you're actually serious about regulating what's happening in the stock and bond markets globally. I think. What do you think? Oh, well, that's, the, that's yeah, we agree. That's the difference between Australia and the US, our, um, our version of the SEC, which is called ASIC, Australian Securities and Investment um, Corporation or Commission, Commission. Commission sorry, um, is the government body. Um, and they have to they have to enforce the act of parliament um, and the laws of the land and so they very much are the watchdog and our regulation is a hell of a lot stronger both on our banking system and also on our broking system but it doesn't mean our brokers and the big fund managers the mutual fund managers don't try and inf um, push their will onto us it can influence them about the decisions they're making and and that doesn't stop them from influencing or trying to influence politicians to make the system that they want um, and they all want to follow the US system because that's where they make more money uh, based on what's going on in the US but is that you a mean better the way structure and the way that it runs yeah the structure and the way it runs but mm. is that better for is that better for the consumer yeah, generally it's not. I mean, I just want to come back to a point mm. that you were mentioning mm. um, earlier about the the brokers and the, the where the, the desks sit. You know, in terms of who's getting what information, um, because I can remember years ago going into a broking house. I'm not going to name the broker, and I don't know whether the Australian landscape has changed in this regard in terms of the laws around this. But the the people taking the orders were right behind the other people who had those independent those um, high net worth right, clients yeah. literally oh, yeah. one meter back to back yeah. Yeah. Right. oh even if they didn't tell them about the trade they hear it if they <laughs> don't hear it can they see it on the platform i don't know but i just think you know there's probably some question marks there still in australia who knows oh, look i think we can we can probably talk about this for hours i think michael about how this sort of works but it really is important stuff for retail investors or our viewers to listen to because yeah. constantly we're getting asked by people that says you know hey the market closed at 4 p.m but then there was a spike of volume after that how did that happen or the price of this stock you know, it closed at this, or I watched it close, and then it was this when it opened up the next morning. How does that actually happen? And a lot of people, as, as you said, rightly said, is a lot of retail people don't really understand how the market works and how the big end of town buy and sell or move securities around and what happens with those big orders and how that does affect the retail investors. And I think we can really um, learn a lot from you about how that actually works, or the, the people... Uh, our viewers can learn a hell of a lot from you from that. Um, what I'd like to is sort of change tact a little bit, because I know we'll cut, touch on this base in future inter interviews again anyway, but I'd like to get your thoughts on the US market right now and what you think it's doing and where it's likely to be over the next few months. So I think it's really tricky. I was thinking about this this morning. Um, the US government up until now has done a couple of stimulus packages, and I think most a lot of that stimulus has gone into not hard assets, but soft assets. And I think most of that's gone to the stock market. And like we said, it's 35%. It went down 35%. It went right back up to where it was. And you can see it's kind of stagnating there. It's going to the right. And now we're starting to make a little bit of a move down. And the real question is, for me, if the government doesn't come in and provide more liquidity, and we've got the trickiness of the election coming up on November 3rd, right? So what are we, 60 days away from that? Something like that. 57 days away. So I think if the government doesn't come in with some kind of stimulus in the next 60 days, I think the market either stagnates or just starts to drip lower. I don't think there's going to be more panic selling. Everybody knows that everybody's already out of work. But as earnings start to come out, I think you have to worry that the market's going to go down. Now, to be fair, 
in 10 years, the market's going to be higher than it is today, by definition. So depending on what your outlook, your long-term outlook is and how old you are, when the markets go down and when they dislocate, I think it's always a trading opportunity. Mm. Always. It always has been. It always will be. So you have to be strategic about where you get in and get out. And when the market goes down another 10 or 20%, I think you just start accumulating stocks. But I think if you have money in, and particularly if you've made money in the market since the lows in April, I think you start selling some stock. And then I think that's what Buffett was doing. Because um, I don't think he panic sells. The dude's 90-something years old. And he has enough money, so he never panic sells. But we, I think I, I said this to you earlier, he sold all of his airlines. Every single one of them. And he sold 10 out of 12 million of his shares of Goldman Sachs as well. And Warren Buffett is not always right, but he's more right than he is wrong. And I think what he's saying is a couple of things. One is travel and tourism in the United States is not going to come back. There are too many planes in the sky, and the airline industry is going to get hurt. Before, it was high oil prices in the early 2000s, and now it's the pandemic. Nobody wants to get on a plane. Um, and the banks are not going to be um, immune, for lack of a better term, from the fall off in GDP growth. And, you know, the government's kind of promising that that third quarter is going to be way better than the second quarter. Sure. I mean, if I broke both of my legs in my last football game, if I just break one in my first one, I'm 50% better, but I'm not sure. <laughs> it's so that's what I think. I think you have to be careful that the market's either going to stagnate or drip lower. What do you think? Yeah, we're, both, we're pretty much the same. We, I, the market does need to come down into a low. My thinking is down into sort of in, into October that we're going to have the next low. I don't think it's going to be a big panic sell. I think we're going to be just a general normal market pullback. But, you know, but we've seen stranger things on our market this year. 2020 has been a real doozy in terms of shocks and surprises and... You know, if we had 2020 vision, we would have all done things a little bit differently from uh, 1 January this year. But I do expect the market to come back. But I'm also thinking 2021 will be a really good market uh, to be in because with the coronavirus meltdown, with all the unemployment that's going on, as you mentioned, I mean, the unemployment being down at 8% now or around 8% in the US, that's a bit of a shock to me uh, and probably is to a lot of people because that's below the peak in the GFC. Uh, that was around 10 odd something percent for the GFC, but it's unemployment's come down. They're not um, the in earnings figures, second quarter earnings figures. There was no sort of major, major surprises. If we get good earnings in the third quarter, that means we're not going to get the major pullbacks in the marketplace. But I think there are a lot of companies that are now they've changed the way they do business. They're leaner, they're meaner, they've got less staff, they've got less baggage, if that makes sense, or less fat across their business. They've trimmed it all up. Um, and so any increase in spending across the US is really going to hit their bottom line pretty quickly and, and be more profit. And so I think we could be able to take off pretty well. But again, you know, is the government going to do another stimulus package? Because, you know, the market, if they put out a stimulus package, the market rises. That's pretty much what's happening. And, and let's go back to both of your um, theories on, you know, buy the 10 biggest stocks. Mm. Well, what is Microsoft? They don't really sell anything anymore that's physical. Like you don't go out and buy Microsoft Excel, you just lease it from them every month. This SaaS model has really worked well. But are the people that are using Microsoft Excel just going to stop using it? Is that just going to go away, even if they're using it at home? People are going to buy iPhones, so Apple, because it's, they've never had 75% of the phone market. They've had 8% of the market. And those 8% are generally wealthy people, and they're not going to get less wealthy, for sure. That's what the Apple market is. So I, don't think, I think if you're thinking about which businesses to buy, you look at that, too. And look at Tesla is going to be a market leader 
in the electric car business for a while, I think. And even if it's not, everybody thinks it is. So market sentiment matters, maybe sometimes more than the earnings. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. But like I said earlier, I think all market dislocation provides the market with opportunity. You just have to figure out what that is and have a strategy. You can't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to do this. You have to wait for your entry point and say, this is what I've been waiting for. Nothing has changed materially that I know about. I'm buying or I'm selling either way. Mm. Mm. No, no, you are correct. It's To me, it's about looking at the right stocks. And I know a lot of people, and we saw this with the Robinhood traders, is they, you know, it shows up on their phone and it says, buy this stock. And Tesla was one of the ones that, you know, I think there was... 40,000 transactions in four hours on Tesla on, in one day, and it pushed Tesla through the roof because they were promoting it. Now, it goes back to what you were saying about the brokers and what they're doing, and if they put out a recommendation through to their database, what they could expect in coming back through in transactions. So, again, this is what that sort of stuff's doing, and we're seeing those chat forums and, and those millennials, if we can broadly use a brushstroke on those, using the apps, using the information, buying those stocks and seeing that happen. But it really is about getting good stocks and not just following the herd. And that's really what we've seen a lot of them do. And, and yeah, the retail traders got it right through the COVID um, meltdown. They came in, they bought in big, they're all unemployed or they're all sitting at home knowing, not knowing what to do. So they thought they'd start trading. Right. And we've got this new generation of people that call themselves traders. Um, right, right. Really... To me, it again, goes back to what's the, what is an investor and what's a trader. Do you want to give us your definitions of those? Yeah, so for me, trading has a fixed time frame on it. It almost has to, right? But if you look at a company like Capital, a company probably most people have never heard of, right? One of the largest fund management companies in the world. They've got a mutual fund, fund business, a hedge fund business, and actually a private equity business as well. They manage over a trillion dollars, but most people have never heard of it. So they'll be more familiar with Fidelity and Vanguard and places like that, but they're also publicly traded companies. But that's an investor. I think they bought Disney when it IPO'd, and I think they probably still own some of it, right? It, it, you're, it, I think it really just depends on your time frame. Obviously, if you're day trading, it's a completely different story. I don't think most people are great day traders. And if you don't understand technicals, like we can talk about that as well, right? You can have a technical trading strategy too. But I think a, a shorter term time frame is what the definition is of a trader, right? Somebody who's willing to go in and go out of the market rapidly and strategically. An investor is somebody who says, I kind of don't care what happens today or tomorrow or the next day or, or next week. I like this business, I think structurally or secularly, this is going to keep either growing or, or going down. So I'm going to be longing for that reason or shorter for that reason. And I think that's my definition of investing and trading. Go ahead, Jimmy. Actually, I want to just bring up this point about time that you were referring to earlier, that people don't have the time to do it. Do, yeah. and do, do you really think it's that? Because from our experience, people do have the time. Like there are, there are even, um, you know, men and ladies who are, choosing to um, make the time in their day. So getting up early, staying up later to be able to learn how to trade properly. Um, I actually think that, you know, you identified the fact that, that, that people are saying that they don't have the time, but I don't think that's the real issue. I think that, you know, Dale always says that a lot of people are lazy and that's the big part of it. And people will do what's easy rather than what they really need to do. And the thing is that people are looking short term um, right now. So they're trying to make extra income because they're worried about losing their jobs. But 
to do their job. They actually had to be doing that for a long time. There are a lot of skills and things that they had to learn, but when they look at the markets, they don't treat it the same way. So they think they can just go in there without anything behind them, which is just totally illogical. So if someone goes into the market with that sort of approach, then they have to sort of get somebody giving them a bit of, tap on, of a tap on the shoulder saying, do you really think that that's actually the right way to think? Because you wouldn't actually do that in your own job. But why would you yeah. do that with your hard earned money? Mm. Right. So this is one of the points that I always try to make. It's like you cannot be a part time trader because nothing you do part time or just some of the time can you be good at. Mm. Right. You can't be a part time professional tennis player because the people that are practicing every day and playing tennis every day are going to destroy you. Mm. And the other thing my boss, my first boss, Tommy Judebach, told me was the market doesn't care about you at all. He doesn't care if you're more alive. It doesn't care if you make money. It doesn't know you. Right. And if you want to give the market money, which is essentially a zero-sum game, then go ahead and give it money. But you're right. Even if they think they have time, nobody succeeds without some kind of plan. Right? You can't just build a house by start nailing boards together. You can end up in a place that just leaks and you can't live in. And I think it's the same thing for trading. So fair enough. They may think they have time, but I definitely don't think they have enough time. And I think if you go statistically and look at people that are trading part-time globally, that haven't been taught some methodology to trade, we're going to lose money. Look, if I, if I decided I was going to change my career and I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to uni to study part-time and, and say somebody out there had to do that because their life circumstances have changed and I've spoken to lots of people, people in trades positions that have worked really hard, they've got maybe aches and pains, sore backs, this and that, they have to go out there and look for something else. So, you know, if they're prepared to go and study a course to do something else, why don't they treat, you know, the stock market in the same way and give yeah. it, you know, give it, because you can actually make a lot more from the stock market potentially than what they were doing for their job. So, you know, sure. it just doesn't make sense. But they don't need they don't need to do this full time. And that's the other myth out there. People think that they've got to do it full time and be trading full time. You don't have to because it depends on, like you were saying before, if people want to be longer term in the market, you don't need as much um, knowledge and understanding as what you do if you're trading on the day to day basis. But, you know, you still need some training and structure and a proper approach to, to do it. And once you do, then it becomes easy. You know, it's just a matter of putting the, the yards in up front and then, and then it flows from there. Right. So my pushback on that would be most people give up when they start losing money. Right. And they mm. don't allocate their capital properly because they don't have a plan. So if they have $10,000 to invest, instead of investing $500 in every, you know, a bunch of different stocks to see how it feels, they'll say, you know, red number seven and they just throw it down and then they lose all their money and then they can't go back into the market. So you're right, if they want to invest in the stock market, they should, again, start, and, and we can talk about this for kids as well, they should learn what the market microstructures are, learn what information impacts the market at a very early age, understand saving and asset allocation and things like that so that they can properly trade. And sure, you can go and learn that on a part-time basis, but you're always going to get carried out by the people that do it full-time. Mm. It's just no it, it doesn't matter because I think, you know, there's enough money for everybody. It just depends on if like you could have one perspective, okay, because you've been in the big end of town, you've seen what the big end of town are focusing on and what they know, all right, and you know what they know and the advantage that that's given them. But yeah. what we keep saying to people is the, the chart doesn't lie. It shows what the, where the big money is going. If you're looking for really short tr term trading, okay, and you've got really tight stop losses, you can be tricked in and out of trades. But if you're looking for like short to medium, medium term, 
and over the more medium term. Um, then there are bigger opportunities there for you to be able to learn and use that knowledge. And you don't need to know what the rest of the, the institutions know. It's just a matter of knowing when to get in and when to get out and having stop losses in place so you can manage the risk. So I think we're saying the same thing. I just think we're mm. saying it in a different way. Um, mm. I, what you're saying is right. They need a plan. And they need to learn what that plan is. They can't make up that plan on an ad hoc basis. But if they do have a plan, then yeah, they can make money. They can come in and out of the market, come in and out of the market. And as long as they understand and have a methodology, they can actually take a break for three months and then come back to the market and do the same thing again. Yes. Yeah. But again, there's a muscle memory thing to it too, right? So... Yeah, well, look, we, I mean, 100% right, co correct. I mean, we, we've always, we've been teaching traders for a, a few decades now, and it was, it's always about knowledge plus skill plus experience equals success. That's the equation, and it's as simple yeah. as that. And you've basically said that in, in uh, the chat that we've had today is, you know, the, that if you're going to go and trade the market, don't do it with your brain turned off, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise just use an ETF or use an index fund like most people do. And that's sort of when Janine said, you know, hey, Dar thinks most people are lazy. And whilst I'm not saying they're all lazy, but they just go, I don't really know how to do this. I don't really know how to pick the right stock. So I'll just leave it up to the big managers and I'll put it in, in a big fund or an ETF and just let them, you know, do my uh, 401k or whatever my managed fund will be and whatever they do. And, and I'll leave it that. And then I've got a professional manager looking after to me and I'll take what they give me. But what Janine's actually saying is, you don't have to put up with that. There's not too hard. You can actually do it yourself. If you get a little bit of knowledge and you put some discipline behind and you spend a little bit of time doing it, and that's exactly what you're saying, don't go to the market unless you yeah, understand cool. what you're doing. If, if they have a methodology, now I'm curious actually from your teaching experience, like you said, you've been doing this for a while. Can you, when, when new students come in, can you get a feel for this man or this woman is going to be very committed to understanding what we're teaching and they're actually going to be good at this and then look at somebody else and just go, nah, they're just never going to be able to hit the ball into that hole kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Because to me, there's an old saying, attitude is everything. And to me, you know, I, I can't, I can teach skill or Janine and I can teach skill. But we can't teach an attitude and, and you have to go to the market and uh, you 100% nailed it when you talked about your boss saying, you know, the market doesn't care who you are. And I've, I've often said to people, to, to students of ours, I've said, mate, the market doesn't care how good you are, how good you think you are, how intelligent you are, how good looking you are, whether you're married, you're single or whatever else, it doesn't care. It's going to take your money if you're not prepared for it. So you need to knuckle down and learn the skills and get the right knowledge and then go to the market, not with your cap in your hand, but going into the market knowing that you know how to understand it. Yeah. And, but also going in there with humility because Janine and I say constantly say we are you know we've been in the markets for over two decades ourselves trading well over two decades and we're still learning stuff and sure. the, the day we stop learning I think it will be the day we end up in a box in the ground because the market yeah. is always doing new things and COVID-19 is a whole new thing to us yes it was a meltdown it was the shortest bear market in the S&P 500's history like you haven't never had a bear market that short but we've yeah. had it. So we've just learned something new and how did we handle it? Most professionals like us stayed out because we were expecting a bit of a bounce and then another fall again, but it didn't happen. The retail investors got it right and they do get it right sometimes, but yeah, the, yeah. 
and that's just the, the part and parcel of the market but it also doesn't make somebody who's been successful since March it doesn't also make them a trader uh, which is exactly exactly what you were can, talking about can I just say yeah. something on that look when when I speak to people if they say to me that they've got a genuine desire to learn to trade then that's great usually someone will come up and you know come be upfront about it but sometimes when I'm talking to clients who want to invest with us it'll come up in the conversation that you know that they've seen that we actually educate people how to trade and then I'll ask the question is well you know have you thought about trading for yourself and they've said to me oh look I don't think I could ever do that now I the amount of people that feel that way or they've had an ex bad experience and you might think okay there are these people who we talk to and we can straight away see that they're going to be good traders because they're really clear about why they want to do it as long as someone's really clear about their motivation and why and sometimes people don't understand what it is at first they could be saying to us oh, it's because I want to make some money because I need to earn, earn a living out of the market or I just want to build my portfolio but it's never about that for anybody it's always a much deeper thing for somebody it'll be you know it'll be like they, they want to have the lifestyle or they want to um, it might be some health issues that they've got or there could be any reason why it's really important to them but I've had guys you know ring up and they've done silly things in the market and then I've said to them anybody can do this it's just a question of being open and honest with yourself about why you want to do it at the start and then put a plan in place and get the right education to do it as long as you've got that determination you're going to get there but the challenge for some people is that um, and it's not because of laziness as you know we were talking about before necessarily it's self-doubt in some cases with people and they just need to be shown that it you can you can take someone who's done no who hasn't even completed a higher school education you know or you could t find someone who has completed higher school than they haven't gone on to university and they have got the capabilities of going on to being a good trader simply because they've decided that they want to be mm. and that they've made up their mind whereas somebody else who could be university qualified um, maybe they're just not confident in themselves they just need that little bit of help along the way to see that anybody could do it regardless of their background or their nationality or anything there's no mm. barriers to it but there is a financial hurdle at the start of course to to be able to get into doing an education but if you don't get that education at the start the market's going to take it from you anyway uh, because you won't have the knowledge to be able to protect yourself so that's really yeah. the important thing and, and i think the self-doubt you make a really good point and i like to mm. make sports analogies right in other words if you play basketball <laughs> or if you play any sport you can be the greatest like free throw shooter in the world until the game's on or the crowd's there and then you get nervous and that when once that self-doubt comes in this is what i was talking about before with discipline but the best players get in a zone where they can kind of block out the rest of the noise. And this is an engineering term I like to use. What do engineers do? They're trying to find signals and eliminate noise. And to a certain extent, great traders do that too. They don't take in any piece of information. As Dale said, you can have too much information. They take in just enough to make a great trading decision, and they ignore all the ancillary noise. They already know, again, before they get in, where they're going to get in, where they're going to get out, and where they're going to stop out. And I agree with you. You don't need to be universally certified. You could have just a high school education to be a great trader. You may be calmer or more self-assured. And I think those things really matter, just like it does in sport, right? The skill level, in a way, is equal at some level. But it's how do you handle the pressure of what's happening in the market moves really fast. And how good are you at that as well? Good at that yeah. as well. 
And mm -hmm. I've, I've, I saw this guy who's one of those extreme people who likes to put himself under huge pressure and tests in life or death situations. His name, his name was Dale, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, um, and I thought about that and, and he's an incredible person and just his, you know, his mindset and his way of thinking. Mm -hmm. But even an individual who has that self-doubt or lack of confidence, that can be changed, um, you know, with, with time and with, with, the, with getting the, the knowledge and the skill, you end up seeing it for yourself. I, we've trained people who um, ha had no confidence or little confidence at the start and to see them come through mm -hmm. and produce the sort of analysis that less than 2% of the population and even people working for the big institutions who have gone through university degrees cannot do because they don't have the knowledge in this specific area. I mean, it's amazing that these people are doing this and it's in Australia and we're spreading our wings and it's going around the world. Hopefully um, over in your jurisdiction, it'll t it could even take off. And in America, um, that's what we're hoping as well, that people will get wind of this. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. I just want to finish up the analogy, right? The idea is if you start hitting some of those buckets when the crowd's there and when the game's on, then your confidence gets higher and then your skill comes out. Mm. I agree with you completely. Mm. Once you put a few wins up on the, on the board, it's much easier. And, and, and that gets back to your comfort with risk-taking and everything else, right? It's like, think about surfing. You get on a wave, you fall, you fall, you fall. You hit your first wave and you surf to the shore. You're like, I got this now. And then you get better at it. And trading is surely the same way. Can be taught. Yeah. Yeah, 100% agree. It's really much. I often say people don't have deep enough pockets to stay in trading long enough to learn how to do it properly. You know, they start off with a little bit of money and, and as you said, they get hit a stumbling block and then they give up. And, and that's really where Janine and I step in and help people understand the market and teach them how to do it better. And I think, you know, I, I could sit here for hours and hours and hours and I know Janine could just chatting with you about this stuff, but we actually have to wrap up our interview. But for the viewers... We're going to have Michael back several times, so it's not something, you know, that you're going to see Michael once and, and he won't be around. And I've really, really enjoyed our chats um, and what you've been talking about. And I think it's super valuable information for everybody watching and, you know, and the viewers here, you know, be wise to heed your, your words that you've talked about, you know, especially how the market works and um, what the institutions are doing. And I'm really looking forward to our next, next chat. But thanks for your time today, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you both very much. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Wealth Within, a global leader in stock market education. For more information on our courses or to listen to more Talking Wealth podcasts, head over to wealthwithin.com.au and click on the Talking Wealth podcast under the Learning Centre.